0: Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. It is great to be with you on this edition of the podcast. We'll be discussing today the topic of C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. Really looking forward to it. In fact, as you probably heard, Apologics Canada is currently setting sail on our very own literary expedition. And in this uh, exploration, if you will, we're going to be reading two books— We'll be looking at C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man and Leslie Paul's book, The Annihilation of Man, both of which were written during World War II. Now, the connection with these books is Michael Polanyi, who in some unpublished lectures and in a published book acknowledges uh, the influence that these two books had on his thinking. And so we want to read those those books and the unpublished lectures together and have a conversation about these important works because I think they have so much to teach us in our day today. So we want to encourage you to join us. If you'd like to join this uh, literary expedition, you can do so at apologeticscanada.com. You can sign up. Uh, Steve and myself are going to be having some sessions that you can join us for as we're going to have uh, conversations. Now, part of those conversations is that we wanted to have different interviews like we have today, where we're uh, going deeper into these subjects and helping you uh, along the way as you're reading and digesting these works. So I would encourage you to get a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, and join us uh, on this journey. Now, as I was thinking about who would be best to bring onto the show to talk about this book, immediately, Lewis Marcos came to mind. Now, some of you will remember that name as Lewis spoke at our 2015, I believe, Apologetics Canada conference. I mean, that was almost six years ago, and we were so thankful and delighted that he agreed to come on the show. Welcome, Dr. Marcos, to the show. Great to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me on, Andy. It's
0: good to be talking to Canada again. It is great to have you with us. Let me just tell people a little bit about you before we get into things here. You hold a B.A. in English and History from Colgate University and an M.A. and Ph.D. in English from the University of Michigan. Now, you're Professor of English and Scholar in Residence at Houston Baptist University, where you hold the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. You're also the author of 19 published books, (laughs) (laughs) two lecture series with The Teaching Company or The Great Courses. And in fact, that's where I uh, originally found out about you. I am a Great Courses junkie. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've never heard of the teaching company, also called The Great Courses, I highly encourage you to go check out all the different lectures they have. So, they put together different lectures by top professors from around the country, and Luis Marcos was the one that they chose. I mean, that's saying something to do the life and writings of C.S. Lewis. And then you also have Plato to Postmodernism, Understanding the Essence of Literature and the Role of the Author. Now, I can tell you right now, these are incredible lectures, and I've listened to them numerous times. Uh, and in fact, if you're a parent, this is something that you could easily even do with your child. You could read or audiobook Chronicles of Narnia and then do as I did with my kids, and we listened to Dr. Marcos's, uh exposition of Narnia. And it went very well together. Highly recommend it. Now, you've also published over 300 articles and reviews. You speak uh, all over the place. And in fact, you are a fantastic speaker. Uh, Lewis, I've got to tell you this. I haven't said this to you, but when you spoke at the conference uh, back in 2015, you and I had dinner at my house. And during dinner, I was talking with you because I was so impressed by your lecture. You did an entire one-hour lecture without notes. You and I are talking, and, I, and I, just, I asked you, how did you do it? And I'll never forget this. You told me that you committed to memory, which those of you listeners who know, uh, for the last two, three years, I've preached without notes. Oh uh, yeah, Almost every sermon that I've done, I've preached without notes. And people are always like, how do you do that? And it all goes back to you. You, you kind of told me. How you did it. But one thing you did that I thought was really amusing, I don't know if you remember this, but in your pocket, you had folded up the notes of your talk as a, oh, crap, I forgot what I was going to say, you know, like safety blanket.
1: Always have it. I never pull it out, but it's got to be there just in case. And that That's my system. I i get my speech. I turn it into an outline. I take notes all over the outline and then I memorize the outline. I, I, I can't memorize it word for word. What that does is it allows me to follow my outline, but also be extemporaneous. And specifically, when you're a Christian speaker like me or yourself, Andy, we do want to leave some room for the spirit. So you yep. know, in this way, there's an openness. And if I feel like the spirit or just the audience wants more, you can move back and forth and you can also drop the last two points of your outline, whatever. And it's, it, the system's worked well for me all these years.
0: It's interesting because that's ex- that's pretty much how I do it as well. I memorize the outline. And then I, you know, fill in extemporaneously. However, it's pretty much because I've had, you know, with a lot of places I preach, you have to do multiple sermons where you're doing, you know, two or three back to back. It's got to be the same. So, they're very similar in structure. But as you know, there'll be slight modifications as you may pick up, you know, one way or the other. The other thing I like about it is you can read an audience better when you're working this way and you can see when, when an audience is gauging with a certain point and maybe you want to highlight that more or particularly when they're not understanding a particular point and you need to expound it a little bit more.
1: Let's move on. You but know. <laughs> It's true. Cause you, you need that interaction. Otherwise, I mean, I, I, you know it's always exciting to hear a you know a famous writer read from his book but why do i want to hear him read from his book i can read his book you know, I just, talk to me you know, let, you know let me hear you know let let the because it's the spontaneity that comes out that's so exciting now of course the most amazing thing we're about to talk about the abolition of man this started as three lectures that c.s lewis read out loud can you imagine sitting and hearing it read out loud and understanding it i mean it, it's just it's just amazing uh, and you, I don't know, your, your listeners know that Lewis's group, they called the Inklings, they got together and they read out loud their works in progress, but they didn't do like, you know, most creative writing classes. When they workshop, everybody makes a copy of their poem or their story and everybody looks at it. But they did, there was no copies. They just read it out loud. I think people back then were were better at, you know, these listening skills. Uh, and, you know, most of us, we need to see it if we're going to do it.
0: Uh, that's it's interesting. I could talk so much even on that because even when you read like something like Dickens, I find Dickens when you hear it that they were used to speaking and listening to each other the way that they write their prose. Hey, listen, though, before we jump into things, have you ever had to pull out your notes? Have you had a moment where you're like, I am totally lost
1: in my thought? I mean, sometimes I have to pull it out if I actually have a quote that's on it, you know, uh, and that I haven't memorized the quote. And I think there was one time that I forgot the sequence and I pulled it out for a second. But I have maybe one one out of a hundred, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but again, before we jump into things, you've written some
0: really interesting books. Let me just highlight a couple of these, and uh, I had a question for you on a couple of them. So you've written Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis, Apologetics for the 21st Century, uh, uh, From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read Pagan Classics. Now, I'm sure that'll come into play here as we talk about Lewis, but you're a big fan of the classics and believe Christians should know them.
1: The number 20 that just came out is called The Myth-Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, and that's the newest one from Classical Academic Press. Well, that
0: was one of my questions for you, because I see that you have a new one that came out called Ancient Voices, uh, an insider's look at classical Greek. But say the title again of the newest one
1: that's coming out. The Myth-Made Fact Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, from Classical Academic Press. And that is kind of a sequel to From Achilles to Christ. Achilles to Christ, I looked at the Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, and Greek tragedies. Here, I go behind that to the real raw material, the the source, the mythology, right? And and it's, you know, I think if we're going to reach this generation, we have to get deeper to the stories, to the meta-narrative. You Canadians now have the most courageous man in all Canada. His name is Jordan Peterson. And even though he's clearly not a believer, because he's tapping into the real stories, he says so many things that are so true. When we go to the to the deep sources, the deep myths, the deep yearnings. I think we make connections that are really, really powerful. And now, the Ancient Voices book is about Greece. In the spring, the sequel is going to come out about Rome, and then next year, the the trilogy is going to finish with the early church.
0: That starts to answer more of the questions I have because you have a book coming out called From Plato to Christ: How Platonic Shaped the Christian Faith. Now, is that a part of that trilogy? That is
1: another iteration of from Achilles to Christ. It's let's look at them, you know, let's be fair to Plato, like I was to Homer and, and Virgil. Let's be, but let's also, let's look and see where there are ideas that are foreshadowing that, that I, you know, I, I really believe that God was prepared, use some of those higher pagan writers to prepare the pagan world for the coming of the gospel. As your own poets have said, Plato says, right? Uh, uh, God did not leave himself without a witness, but spoke through. And so I'm, you know, my idea is always listening for the deeper message, for the questions, for the struggles, and and, and try to reach out and and, and, uh, basically, I guess, build the bridge from the pre-Christian to the Christian. I don't know about you, Andy, but, you know, it always worried me this idea. Are are you telling me that before Jesus came, God only spoke to the Jews and ignored 99% of humanity? Well, he only spoke directly to the Jews, but he didn't ignore the Gentiles, the pagans. He spoke to them through what we call a general revelation and and Mm -hmm. spoke through their reason, their conscience, their imagination, their dreams, their myths, and, and even their rituals, some of which are very bloody but they often have a seed of truth that is pointing forward. And so that's kind of a a theme behind almost all my works. It's bringing Athens and Jerusalem together, is is what we often call it, building that bridge. Now, this is a good
0: place to jump in because this is something that happens, actually, in the abolition of man. What you're talking about here is exactly what C.S. Lewis believes and thinks, and we particularly see this idea that, you know, there is this revelation, if you will, in the concept of morality that pervades throughout all cultures of ideas that we would see as—now, Lewis is going to call it the Tao, and, and we're going to get into this, but specifically he says in the book that he's defining it as natural law or traditional morality. We would probably call that objective moral values, right? Right. But he's saying you could find that in any culture. Like this, this, you know, this isn't just exclusive to Christianity,
1: really. And I mean, the, the, the proof of this, this idea of the Tao, this universal cross-cultural moral ethical code written in our conscience—if I want to give it a long definition—and the proof of that is, if the Tao did not exist, we could not have had the Nuremberg trials when they put the Nazi war criminals on trial. The only way you can put those war criminals on trial is if you take for granted there are certain things that are right and wrong, that there is a standard. But it's more than that, Andy. You can't have Nuremberg trials unless you agree the standard exists. You believe that the Nazis knew that standard and yet broke it anyway. If they could convince you that the war criminals really did not know they were violating objective moral truth, then we wouldn't execute them. We would put them in an insane asylum, right? So we understand. People that really, really don't understand the Tao are, again, they're institutionalized, because we understand that they are, today we often use the word, uh, not necessarily a psychopath, but a sociopath, someone that just doesn't know. And that happens. We live in a broken world sometimes. But that is very much the exception that proves the rule. Well, this is an interesting point that's even played
0: itself out in our culture today with regards to all that's happened with the police and riots and everything. But I, I think about the violence that, that's happened where, you know, this police officer says abusing some citizen, but there's police officers standing by that don't do anything, they'll be implicated as having a duty to intervene. Now, this is interesting because if we go back to this idea of the Nuremberg trials, that's what's happening with these soldiers. They're they're saying, listen, you know, soldiers are being put on trial, right? Because they're saying you should have known better. Yeah, you were following your country. Yeah, you're following, you know, German law, but you should have known. You knew better. You knew that what you're doing was wrong.
1: We're moral, ethical beings. If a pit bull mauls a child, you either let it go or you put it to sleep, but you don't put it on trial because it's not a moral, ethical creature, whereas we are, and we know that. Here is my simple definition of the Tao for people that don't believe it. The Tao is the way you expect other people to treat you. So we all know what it means. (laughs) Lewis does a great job arguing for it. A good book to read alongside the abolition of man is book one of mere Christianity. Although Lewis doesn't use the word Tao, in book one of the mere Christian that's what he's talking about and he's using it as his argument for God because if there is the existence of the Tao it couldn't have evolved because it's universal across all culture and all time it must come from outside of our world and there must be a supernatural director of the Tao so again no. Miraculous doesn't use the word Tao but he's talking about the same concept there as he does in abolition of man
0: Now, I noticed in the great courses, you actually put the Abolition of Man in Mere Christianity. You kind of combine them into your your lecture. Now, which would you recommend? Uh, Are you saying to read Mere Christianity first before Abolition of Man?
1: You can read it, but for the regular reader, Mere Christianity book one is easier to understand.
0: Well, it's funny you bring that up because I really want to get to that point to get to the fact that I think it is a difficult book to read. Let's give a little bit of context to the book, because I think that'll help us to get at this, this idea. Now, The Abolition of Man, this is interesting, it has a subtitle that's often not read, Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English in the Upper Forms of School. So, that starts to tip you off as to what's going on here. Lewis has something in mind as he takes three lectures to get put into a book in mind here, Now, this dates to 1943. I think that's interesting, isn't it? This lecture is taking place right in the middle of World War II. That's true. Right. And so, you can imagine then that the topic of ethics is heavily on many people's minds at this point. Mm. As a world, this is caught up in war. And I think about, you know, we've been in a pandemic for almost a year now. Mm -hmm. You have to consider that war started in 1939. They've had their whole lives come to a screeching halt, you know, for a number of years at this point. Lewis specifically comes at this
1: topic because of a book he received. He calls it The Green Book. Now, Mere Christianity wasn't published till the early 50s. It's almost a decade afterwards. But Mere Christianity came from the broadcast talks that C.S. Lewis gave on the air in 1940 and 41, while britain was being bombed by the germans so in that dark day lewis is trying to tell us what we're fighting for what we have in common and i i do think that that gives us also a background for the abolition of man but now we'll we'll go to your question andy in this book this actual real book lewis calls it the green book but it was a real book they tell a story about that's based on something coleridge said, the famous romantic poet and he saw a man and a woman, and they were by the the Alps, and they were looking at a beautiful waterfall coming down. And the man said, that waterfall is sublime. And the woman said, that waterfall is pretty. And Coleridge agreed with the man that it was sublime and disagreed with the woman that it was pretty. And the textbook taught the children, of course, Coleridge is wrong because it's all, basically, we would say it's all subjective, it's all relative, it's all in the eyes of the beholder. And Lewis is saying, no, okay, the word sublime, we don't usually say sublime and pretty. We usually say sublime and beautiful, but there is a difference. These things are real. There is such a thing. Sublimity is different than beauty. We have this idea, and, and this has really affected Christians, Andy. This is why it's really da- dangerous. Okay, this sounds like a segue, but it really isn't. All the way back to Plato, but in the Middle Ages, Augustine, all of them understood that the three transcendentals are goodness, truth, and beauty. Good with a capital G, truth with a capital D, beauty with a capital B, a T, right? That they're absolute. And I see more and more Christians who are like, okay, I I believe in absolute truth and maybe goodness, but beauty's all relative. The trouble, Andy, is that once we allow beauty to become completely subjectivized, only in the eye of the beholder, having nothing to do with objective reality, sooner or later, we will end up subjectivizing and relativizing goodness and truth. And what's happened in the modern world is anything to do with the arts or religion now. It starts with the arts. Beauty is only in the eye of the holder, but that spreads to any religious statement is also subjective and relative, and ultimately any moral or ethical standard, and sooner or later any standard, any theological or philosophical standard. So Lewis is trying to show the danger of this. What you are teaching the student is that your emotion of the sublime or the beautiful Is ultimately mean it's relative and subjective, but what that means to the kid is it's meaningless.
0: So this then is kind of his entryway as he's going to take this into the conversation of ethics. Now, this first lecture is called Men Without Chess. What is he getting at?
1: Plato explains that there's three parts of our soul: there is the rational part, the reason part, there is the appetitive, right? That I want, I want. And then mediating between two is the spirited part. And Lewis, also following Plato, links the rational to the head, links the appetitive appetite to the belly, and links the spirited part to the chest. Now, the danger is if there is a one-on-one war between the rational head and the appetitive Uh, stomach, the the, the id, if you want to use the Freudian phrase. If there's a one-on-one fight, sooner or later, the belly's going to win. The the head, the reason, will get swamped and overwhelmed by the sort of lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, whatever you want to call it. The only way we can survive is if the spirited chest, the place where courage is, if the spirited chest comes to the aid of the head, It can overcome the belly. Now, what is the chest? The chest is rightly ordered feelings and emotions. That's where our courage is. That's where our patriotism is. That's where our love of goodness, truth, and beauty is. Okay, look, good old Kant tried to save morality in a modern age by coming up with what's called the categorical imperative. That's the idea you're trying to figure out whether or not this is a right action. And the way you're supposed to do it is take your action. uh, I, I wanna take something from that store without paying for it. Take it and turn it into a principle. It is all right for me to take what I want from that store without paying. Then universalize that maxim. It is all right for anyone at any time to do that. And if you try to take that and put it into action, you realize it leads to chaos. So don't do it. Just follow your duty. You know what? If if I'm an American soldier and I'm at my post and the enemy's coming at me and I'm trying to decide whether to stay and do my duty or run away, if I run through my head the categorical imperative, I'm going to break and run away with my tail between my legs. You know what's going to keep me at my post if I'm an American? Looking up and singing, and I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. I don't know what Canadians say. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you guys are allowed to have a song like that, actually. <laughs> Canada my Canada, whatever. Uh, you know, uh, Maybe some ice hockey cheer or something. I don't know. But what I'm saying is is that it is the town. It, it, it's not just the rational principle. But it is the way that we have embodied courage. That's the chest that keeps us there. But we are creating men without chest because what we're doing is we're not just dismissing things like patriotism. We are ridiculing it uh, and we're dismissing it and ripping it away. Uh, Andy, you look at me. I have very little hair. but. I've got the same amount of hair I did when I was 20. It's just my brain keeps growing. Can't keep up. um, (laughs) We need to strengthen the towel and the chest because it's all linked together. And again, what's happening is, is that we're, we're actually using ridicule and attacking and just maybe the best way to explain this. If you have, if you have kids, you have kids, right? Andy. Yeah. Okay. If your son does something really courageous and you say to him, son, I was proud of you today. You showed courage. What will happen to your, you'll see, literally see his chest go up. Right. But if you say to him, you know, I was ashamed of you. You were very mean to your sister. He like, he will like, Oh, and you'll, you'll just see. And, and that's good. Don't stop him. He needs to feel that. Then you hug him and say, I love you still, but don't say it's okay. What you did is wrong, but I still affirm you. I, I want to just take
0: a, a moment here just to pause and, and I, I want to circle back to what, I, what, what we were kind of talking about earlier, that this is a difficult book to, to read. This is, and, and I just say it's difficult in that you could tell Lewis is fired up. Lewis is angry. He's fairly aggressive in the book, which is not normal for, for Lewis. Uh, but here's the other thing that I think is interesting, I, and I wanted to try this on you and see what you felt, but the book comes across very erudite. It comes across to me that Lewis has taken the gloves off this is one of those moments where you're like, man, Lewis is smart. This dude knows his stuff because he name drops in this oh, yeah. just to show you how well read he is. This is Lewis with the gloves off.
1: He could be a little bit tougher, but you, you, normally you're right in his books. He has a much more ironic tone and, 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 and you know gentle and stuff. And here, I mean, he realizes that a great deal is at stake
0: here. Yeah, he realizes this is a big issue. He's in the midst of war, and he's realizing, what would happen in this war if you had men without chess, right? What's going to happen to society? People without virtue, where where ultimately when you get into the next lectures, you, you have the way and then you have the abolition of man. He's ultimately coming to this place where he's saying, this issue will destroy humanity. Yeah, Is that not what he's saying by the abolition of man? Yeah.
1: There's, there's a, just a logical. We, we might call it a slippery slope, but it's a logical, not an Ill, uh, it's not a logical fallacy. It, it actually what happens is once we throw out the town, any standard sense of morality. Again, first we throw out standards of beauty, then we move on to throw out standards of truth and goodness. Again, they, they're all connected: the good, the true, the beautiful. But once we throw out those standards, then what's to stop us? from remaking the world now we start by remaking nature we turn nature into an object into a thing and and you know i you you mentioned uh polani i've not read him but uh, does does he do a little bit of what owen barfield does of of how we've broken subject and object does he talk about that well
0: before the show for for listeners lewis and i were talking about my doctoral work with michael Polanyi. Now. Michael Polanyi, he defines those a little bit differently, Lewis, but he would ultimately say that the problem that we have is a scientific one that we try to reduce. He, he uses this word objectivism, but he's getting at this idea of a reductive physicalism, and that if that is your foundation for reality, it can't make sense of things
1: like morality, or virtue. I haven't read enough direct Polanyi, but Owen Barfield, who was one of the inklings of friends with Lewis and Tolkien, uh, wrote a book called Saving the Appearances. And he talks about how we used to have a subjective relationship with nature, by which he meant, you know, nature was not this dead thing cut off from us, but there was a link or a relationship. But what we did is we reduced nature to a dead object, and then we can do whatever we want with it. Okay. The problem now- is. That once you reduce nature, sooner or later, you reduce man. So that we also become an object, a cog in the wheel that can be manipulated and used. I,
0: I think this is a good place to quote Lewis here from The Abolition Man. He says, "...we shall, in fact, be the slaves and puppets of that to which we have given our souls." It is in man's power to treat himself as a mere natural object and his own judgments of value as raw material for scientific manipulation to alter at will. The objection to his doing so does not lie in the fact that this point of view, like one's first day in a dissecting room, is painful and shocking till we grow used to it. The pain and the shock are at most a warning and a symptom. The real objection is that if man chooses to treat himself as raw material, raw material he will be. Not raw material to be manipulated as he fondly imagined by himself, but by mere appetite, that is, mere nature, in the person of his dehumanized conditioners. We have been trying, like Lear, to have it both ways. To lay down our human prerogative and yet at the same time to retain it.
1: This is so true. You know, Andy, has has something called Body Works made it up to British Columbia?
0: Yes, I I actually took my kids to it. It's quite fascinating.
1: And I remember asking my students, you know, you know, is this really a good treatment of, of the human body? And, of course, their answer was, well, all those pe- bodies gave their consent. That's a modern idea that as long as it's consensual. I mean, it's not necessarily bad, but, you know, Lewis would say that if, if Lewis saw that, he would have been horrified. I mean, because Christians did not cremate their dead until very recently. And I'm not saying that's a sin or anything, but the idea was that, you know, the body is a good creation and we'll have resurrection bodies at some point. And so it, it's, it's one way that if we're not careful we do start to think of ourselves, some people would blame Descartes for this as animated meat. Again, this is this idea that we think we can perfect ourselves. The the trouble is we think we're going to make a better humanity, but all we're doing is giving power to those conditioners, those eugenicists. Now, maybe in the beginning, those remakers will be guided by the Tao in their remaking. But once we throw away the Tao, then there's nothing objective for them to base their manipulation on. Let's
0: just pause there for a moment, because you've used the word eugenics here. It's a Greek word meaning well-born. And uh, it comes from Darwinism, particularly from Francis Galton, who basically just uses Darwinian naturalism to say, listen, you can have more well-born people or less well-born. Now, it's interesting that you bring this up because Lewis brings up the concept of eugenics in the abolition of man. And I think this is an important point that a lot of people have forgotten. And we we've gotta we gotta like re educate that going into World War II, eugenics was a very popular idea, and they are seeing this completely unravel before their eyes in absolute horrific ways oh, yeah. that history would begin to tease out with what the Germans did to the disabled to the Jews obviously and and happened in other ways we can't forget that we've divorced darwinism from eugenics right. historically forgetting or being naive to it and you're right it's rearing its ugly head again yeah. i
1: think someone wrote over auschwitz never again
0: now this is cuz this this gets into a really interesting idea and i don't want to go too far afield from lewis but it is interesting that we are very much finding ourselves in a shame culture. Yes. And, and that's what gets really weird about all of this. Now, I want to come back to Lewis, and, and I want to come back at him, though, with a little bit of a critique. I think that today there's moral realists that would, say, that would agree with Lewis, and you have godless moral realism such like Eric Willenberg and others that would say, yeah, sure, uh, Lewis is right, the Tao does exist, but they're going to want to establish that as some sort of platonic form or just as a moral fact and leave it at that. How do you think Lewis would respond to that? Or maybe how would you respond to that? Here's the thing,
1: and this is, I think, true for especially for America and Canada both. I'm coming from an evangelical background and a lot of evangelicals, especially Calvinists, they kind of resisted the idea of natural law because it was considered too Catholic to them. And luckily, we're finally embracing natural law again. And natural law is a way that you can speak about morality in a public square that is secular. Canadian legal system is is built off off
0: of this idea. Okay. The, the Canadian legal system is built off of the idea that people can access morality and that we can determine what is right and what's wrong and this is built off of case law where you're having these cases that you're needing to decide what is the moral standard in this moment but and, but it's interesting because the idea, though, is that you're getting better at this over time. But that that has philosophical implications. It's not relativism. And, and it has a—, a natural law. <laughs> <laughs> but it has this idea that there's a standard out there. It has this idea that there is the ideal, and you're working your way as best you can, it, they're
1: just seeking to do that without any sort of revelation. One of the great mysteries of the 20th century is that Quebec, Canada, went almost overnight from being the most truly Christian part of Canada to the most secular part of Canada. Almost, and they call it the Velvet Revolution. Maybe it's got something to do with what you're saying. I've I've got to sort of investigate that a little more. Here's something that I think that's
0: interesting on this, because Lewis actually points out in the lectures that he is not attempting to argue for God from morality. But he's arguing that morality does exist. It's something that you can and that everyone does tap into experiences. If I were to just kind of add to Lewis, I'd say he probably could have developed more on the idea of duty. One of the things I'm even seeing in just scholarly uh, work right now on objective moral values is the need to accompany that with this idea of duty.
1: Is that what they would call deontology?
0: Yeah. And and what we're talking about here is, is deontology. Lewis does say when you come into relationship with a person, that idea of morality is something you you come into relationship and it's universal. It's very interesting, isn't it, at the end of his book,
1: that he seeks to prove this, doesn't he? That's right. And the appendix yeah. lines everything up and shows that, you see, I mean I can't say for sure right now, but my guess would be one of the reasons Lewis would maybe tend away from that duty at talk is that's basically Kant. And Lewis saw the dangers in Kant. I wouldn't call him an anti-Kantian, but he certainly saw the dangers. Of course, in mere Christianity, he moves from the Tao to Christianity. And the way he, yes, does, he does it there is that, look, the one thing that everybody knows, with the, as long as if, they may not want to admit it, but everybody knows two things number one we should live a certain way number two we don't live a certain way. actually number three we can't live a certain way so we all know this instinctively we should live a certain way but we don't and we can't but what every religion says is you're right you can't but keep trying and lewis says only christianity takes seriously the fact that we should live a certain way but we can't and thus we need the gospel we need grace we need the atonement
0: and he's really getting at this idea, that commonality, uh, that morality exists, you know it exists, and the importance of this, who and what we are as human beings. If you take away morality and you have the abolition of man, then the understanding would be that morality is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be human, to
1: the, the way in which we behave. Lewis helps us to understand this. I think this is really more in in Christianity. There, there is a difference between the laws of morality and the laws of propriety. The laws of propriety change from culture to culture. One culture may say you can have four wives instead of one, but no culture says you can have any woman you want. Lewis is trying to engage our common sense you know, Lewis, along with Chesterton, is one of those people we call the apostle of common sense. He's trying right. to appeal to our sense of reality, to, to what we know is true, but we keep wanting to deny it to ourselves. And he, he speaks to that, and he helps us to see it.
0: Now, listen, our, our time is up, so we got to come to a close here. I would be amiss if I didn't ask you two questions in closing. And they're, they're, they're off topic here. They're not with regards to abolition of man, but maybe they're close.
1: First of all, I've got to ask you, what's your favorite C.S. Well, Lewis book? if I had to choose one, it would be The Great Divorce. I, I just love that. I always speak about that. But the most prophetic book that Lewis wrote, the book that everyone in education must read, is The Abolition of Man. That may be his most important book. And it is much more true today than it was when it was written. So I, I love Abolition of Man and its understanding of what I call the psychology of sin. But Abolition of Man, especially since I'm a professor and both my kids are educators, the the it 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 is lifting up the veil and giving us the warning we need to watch out for where we're leading ourselves.
0: Second question. What's your favorite book or novel? Do you have one
1: where you're like, that's my favorite author or that's my favorite book? Well, I mean, other than Lewis, I would probably, you know, the, the divine comedy, I guess, because every, everything is a Dante's divine comedy. I mean, I love all of Lewis's stuff, Screwtape and Great Divorce and whatnot. I'm a big fan of the epics, Homer, Virgil, Dante, Milton. But, you know, Dante's just got all of it there together. And, and, and he and of course, you know, Great Divorce is a sort of miniature great uh, uh, divine comedy.
0: Speaking of great books, uh, you have written a number of, of great books, a number of great articles. I always encourage people to come check out your material um, and, and have done my best to promote it. Uh, where can people go to learn uh, more about you and, and about what you've written?
1: the uh, Easiest way, just go to Amazon.com and type in my name, Lewis Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S, is Greek. And also if you go to uh, YouTube, but every, everything really is, is at my uh, Amazon page is the easiest way to go there.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to end here. Thank you for helping us engage with the abolition of man coming out of your ivory tower there in at <laughs> Houston Baptist University. We, uh, I really appreciate it, man. I always enjoy talking with you and, and learning from you. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Thanks AC so Podcast. so much, Andy. Let's pray for a healthy 2021. Amen, brother. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us on the AC Podcast. We will come back next week with
1: more things to think about. Thank you guys for joining us on this week's AC podcast, where Andy Steiger had a conversation with Dr. Lewis Marcos about C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. As you have just heard, The Abolition of Man is one of C.S. Lewis's more sophisticated reads and may be beneficial to be accompanied by a secondary resource. For those of you who are interested in the book or have signed up to join us on our literary expedition, we have added to our website the links to a YouTube resource called C.S. Lewis's Doodles to help you better digest the reading. Simply go to our website at apologeticscanada.com and under events, select Literary Expedition. At the bottom where it says additional resources, we have added the YouTube links to three chapters you'll be going through with us. Simply select the link and enjoy the doodle visuals that coincide with the reading of The Abolition of Man.